Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. Back from the Grave by Robert Silverberg Massey woke slowly, as if the return to awareness were almost painful to him. He had the ghastly sensation of being closed in. The air around him was warm and moist and faintly foul-tasting as it passed into his lungs, and everything was dark. He yawned, tried to stretch. Probably the windows were closed in the bedroom, that was all. That was why everything seemed so muggy in here. All he had to do was to call his wife, have her get the maid or someone else to draw back the curtains and let some fresh air into the room. Louise! Louise! His voice sounded oddly muffled, flat and indistinct in his own ears. It seemed to bounce back at him from the walls and ceiling of his bedroom. Louise! I'm calling you! Massey suddenly became conscious of the noxious humidity all about him. Very well, he thought, if there's no one else here, I'll have to open the windows myself. He levered himself up on his elbows, tried to swing himself out of bed. He realised that he was not in bed at all. A pallid quiver of fear lanced through him as he discovered he did not have room to rise to a sitting position. Above him, only inches above his head, he felt the smooth sheen of satin. There was satin all about. He reached to his left in the darkness and felt satin again, barely an inch from his shoulder. It was the same to his right. Moment after moment, the air was growing murkier and harder to breathe, and he didn't have room to move. He seemed to be in a container just about the length and width of his own body. There is only one purpose for a container of such dimensions. Massey felt the clammy hand of panic brush his cheeks. My God, he thought, they've made a mistake. They thought I was dead and they buried me. I'm not dead. I'm, I'm, I'm buried alive. Massey lay quite still for several moments after the terrible truth had become apparent. He didn't want to panic. He was a reasonable man. He knew that to panic now would mean certain death. He had to be calm, think this thing out. Don't panic. The first fact to consider was that he was in a coffin. Coffins are not built with much airspace. Massey was a heavy-set man, and that meant not only that he needed a lot of air, but that there could be little air in the coffin to begin with, and that air was rapidly being exhausted. He began taking shallower and less frequent breaths. Perhaps they hadn't buried him yet. Maybe he was still lying in state in a funeral parlour somewhere. They had lowered the coffin lid already, but there was still the chance they had not yet placed him in the grave. In that case, he summoned up his energy and released it in one mighty cry for help. He waited. Nothing happened. Massey realised that such shouting was wasteful of oxygen. Probably they couldn't hear him through the heavy lid of the coffin, or... He quivered at the possibility. Perhaps they had lowered him into the ground already, said the proper words over him, shoveled the soil back into the cavity. That would mean that five feet of packed-down earth lay above his head. Not even a superman could raise a coffin lid with that kind of weight pressing down. Lying there in the darkness, Massey tried to force himself not to think of that possibility. Despite himself, the vision came, 
of himself two yards beneath the ground, wasting his last strength in a desperate and ultimately futile attempt to raise a coffin lid held down by hundreds of pounds of soil, pushing and pushing while the moist air around him gradually gave up its life-saving oxygen and became unfit to breathe, until finally he clutched at his purpling throat in agony, unable even to double up because of the dimensions of the coffin. No, he thought, I won't think of it. The only situation he would allow his numbed mind to consider was a more hopeful one, that he was still above the surface of the ground. Otherwise, there would be no hope, and he might as well lie back and die. But how could such a thing happen to me? He had heard cases of premature burial before. Most of them were apocryphal, of course, tales out of Poe placed in real life by glib-tongued liars. But this was no lie, nor was it a story by Poe. Here he was, James Ronald Massey, forty-four years old, assets better than five hundred thousand dollars, holding responsible positions in no less than seven important corporations. Here he was, lying in a coffin hardly bigger than his own body, while his life flickered like a dying candle. It was like a dream, a nightmare. But it was real. Massey allowed himself the luxury of a deep breath and raised his arms until his hands pressed against the satin-lined lid of the coffin. Tensing his body, he pushed upwards until his wrists ached. Nothing happened. Not even the smallest upwards motion of the coffin lid was apparent. He let his hands drop. Droplets of sweat broke out all over his body. His clothes itched. He was wearing not one of his own costly suits, but some cheap outfit supplied by the undertaker, and the coarse fabric felt rough and unfamiliar against his skin. He wondered how much more time he had before the air would be totally vitiated. Ten minutes? An hour? A day, perhaps? He wondered how he could possibly have been buried alive at all. As he lay there, gathering his strength for another attempt to raise the lid, his thoughts drifted back, back over an entire lifetime, really, but centering on only the last three years, the years of his marriage to Louise. Massey had been past forty when he married her. She had been only twenty-three. He had never had time to marry when he was young. He was always too busy, involved in complex corporate schemes, pyramiding his investments building up his money to provide himself with a luxurious middle age. Despite himself, he smiled ironically, lying in the coffin, as he recalled his frantic planning. The long hours of pacing the floor at night to devise yet another investment plan. For what? Here, at the age of forty-four, he lay trapped alive in his coffin, with his life ticking away with every beat of his heart. Unless he freed himself through a miracle, there would be no old age for him, and he would not have Louise any more. The thoughts of Louise made the fear return. He had met her at a summer resort at one of his rare vacations. She was with her parents, and they had danced a few times, and before the two weeks were over, 
Massey had astonished himself by proposing marriage to her. She had astonished him even more by accepting. They had been married a month later. It was a small ceremony, though he did send announcements to all his business associates, and they honeymooned for a month in South America. Massey could not spare more than a month away from his desk. Louise didn't seem to object to his devotion to his work, especially when he explained his financial status to her and their children after he was gone. Those early married months had been the happiest of his life, Massey thought. To watch Louise moving around the big mansion was a delight. She seemed to bring a glowing radiance wherever she went. I have to get out of here. The thought took on new urgency as he pictured Louise in his mind, tall, slim, so graceful she seemed to float instead of to walk, with her hair a golden halo round her head, so lovely, so warm, so loving. Massey's breath came in panicky, harsh gasps now, even though he fought for control over his rebellious lungs. There was still plenty of time, he told himself. Just get in the right position and lift. How much can a coffin lid weigh anyway? Plenty, came the answer, if there's a ton of dirt holding it down. No, it isn't so, Massey shouted and the booming sound ricocheted mockingly from the walls of his coffin. I'm not underground yet. I I can still get out. He squirmed around on one hip after a good deal of wriggling and put his shoulder to the coffin lid. He took a deep breath. Now, lift. He pushed upward, anchoring himself with his left hand and pressing up with his right shoulder until it seemed that his left arm would buckle under the strain. Bands of pain coursed through his body, across his chest, down his back. The lid would not budge. Massey's calmness began to desert him. The air was so close it stank now. Stank with musty graveyard odours and with his own perspiration and with the killing dankness of the carbon dioxide that was rapidly replacing its oxygen. He began to laugh hysterically, suddenly, Without warning, he threw his head back and laughed, not seeming to care that by so laughing he was consuming more of his precious remnant of breathable air. It was all so funny. He remembered his last day of consciousness, remembered Louise in Henry Marshall's arms. Henry Marshall had arrived on the scene in the first year of Massey's marriage to Louise. She had told Massey one night, in that casual way of hers, Uh, I'm having a guest for dinner. Oh, uh, anyone I know? A boy named Henry Marshall, an old playmate of mine. I hadn't seen him for years. Massey had smiled indulgently. Above all else, he wanted Louise to be happy and never to fear that because she had married a husband at nearly twice her age, she was condemned to a life of solemn loneliness. Henry Marshall arrived at the dot of six that night, He was a boy of about twenty-five, tall and handsome, with wavy blonde hair, and an easy, likeable manner about him. Something in his very charm made Massey dislike him almost on sight. He was too casual, took things too much for granted. Massey noticed that Henry Marshall was dressed rather shabbily, too. It was not a pleasant evening. Louise and Henry Marshall reminisced together, chuckled over old times that meant nothing to Massey, 
told stories of friends long since unseen. Henry Marshall stayed late, past eleven, and when he finally left and Massey held Louise tightly in the quiet of her bedroom, he sensed a certain remoteness about her that he had never felt before. It was as if she were making love mechanically, not really caring. Massey brooded about that in the days that followed, though he never spoke a word to Louise, and Henry Marshall became a frequent visitor at the Masseys, coming sometimes for dinner, occasionally remaining as a house guest for two or three days. Massey resented the younger man's presence, but as always he remained silent, out of deference to his wife's happiness. He had almost come to accept Marshall's regular visits, even though they were occurring more frequently now, twice a month where they had only been once a month. But, thought Massey, as he lay in the clammy darkness of the coffin where he had been interred alive, this final visit, only a few days ago, was it, or had years gone by, this final visit had been too much. Young Marshall had arrived on Friday night in time for dinner, as usual. By now he was well known among the servants, and they gave him his usual room in the north wing of the building. It was gay and amusing at dinner and afterwards. Massey retired early that night, pleading a headache, but he lay awake, tossing restlessly in his bed, perturbed half by the problems involved in a large steel manoeuvre coming up on Monday, half by the presence of this flippant youngster under his own roof. Half the sleepless night went by, and visions danced before him, Louise, lovely, tempting, belonging to him. A current of excitement rose in Massey. He left his bed, donned a housecoat, and made his way down the hallway to his wife's bedroom. The great clock in the corridor told him that the time was past three in the morning, and the big house was quiet. Louise had left the Do Not Disturb sign on her bedroom door. Massey opened the door gently, silently, thinking that if she were asleep he would not awaken her, but hoping that perhaps she too had tossed and turned this evening and would welcome him into her bed, into her arms. He tiptoed towards the canopied bed. Louise was not asleep. She was looking up at him, eyes bright with fear, or was it defiance? Louise was not alone. Henry Marshall lay beside her, an arm thrown negligently over her bare shoulders. In one stunned instant of understanding, Massey saw confirmed what he had barely dared to suspect these past years when Henry Marshall had visited them so many times. Louise was deceiving him. A hot ribbon of pain coursed across the front of his body, centering like a cauterizing knife just behind his ribs. He gasped in agony and confusion. Louise, I didn't know. They were sitting up in bed, both of them smiling at him. They were unafraid. Well, now you do know, Henry Marshall said, and it's been going on for years. What are you going to do about it, old boy? Massey's heart thundered agonizingly. He staggered, nearly fell, grabbed a bedpost to support himself. His arms and legs felt cold with a deadly chill. Louis said quietly, 
You were bound to find out about us sooner or later. Henry and I have been in love for years, ever since we were nineteen, but we couldn't afford to marry, and he agreed to wait a few years when I met you. Only a few years, that's what your doctor told me, privately. He didn't want you to know. Massey put his hands to the fiery ball of palpating hell that his heart had abruptly become. He could almost feel the blood circulating through his body, pounding at his brain. Louise said, Dr. Robinson said you had a serious heart defect. Any shock was likely to carry you off. But he didn't want you to know about it. He said your days were numbered anyway, so you might as well live them out in peace. But I knew, and Henry knew, and now we'll inherit your money, James. We're both still young, and we'll have each other for years to come. Massey took two uncertain steps towards the couple in the bed. Red flashes of light were interfering with his vision, and his legs were numb. Louise, it isn't so. Louise, this is all a dream, isn't it? You're wide awake. It's actually happening. Why don't you die, you old fool? Die! Die! And then he had started to fall, toppling into the thick, wine-red carpet of Louise's bedroom, lying there with his hands dug deep into the high-piled rug where eddies of pain ripped through him and above him sounded their mocking laughter and Louise's repeated cry of Die, you old fool! Die! Die! So, that was the way it had been. Massey recalled everything now, and he understood. The shock of finding Louise and Henry Marshall that way had touched off the heart attack that had been inevitable for so long. He had lain on the floor in Louise's bedroom, unconscious, in a coma perhaps, and somehow, somehow, the doctors had decided he was dead. It was incredible. Had life indeed been flickering so feebly in him that the high-priced medicos had failed to realise he still lived? Or, the thought chilled Massey there in the darkness, had Louise and her lover found some complacent doctor who, or a fee, would certify death when death had not really come. What if Louise had known he was still alive, though unconscious, and had knowingly placed him in this coffin and sent him to the darkness of the grave? A terrible passion came to life in Massey. He would get out. He had won before, in corporation matters, in proxy fights, in struggles of every kind. He was a mild-mannered man on the surface, but his will was all-consuming once it was aroused. He would free himself. Somehow. Massey vowed to escape from his grave, whether he lay under a ton of soil or not. He would return to life, come back from the grave, punish Louise for her crime, make her atone for her mocking infidelity. I'll get out. He swore to himself, I won't die here like a trapped rat. The word rat brought a new and even more ghastly thought to his mind. He had heard legends of the graveyard rats, great slug-shaped creatures with blazing red eyes and tails like scaled serpents, who tunnelled under the graveyards and gnawed their way into the new graves to devour the flesh of recent corpses. 
Suppose they came for him. Suppose, even now, as he lay here, the graveyard beasts squatted in their unmentionable tunnels below his coffin, nibbling at the wood with yellowed teeth, gnawing, biting, scratching, boring ominously inward. How the rats would rejoice when they found a living man within the coffin. Massey had always had a vivid imagination. Now, with darkness settled like a cloak about him, he found himself unable to make that imagination cease functioning. Sharply, in the eye of his mind, he saw the gleeful cascade of rats pouring through the breach in the coffin wall, saw dozens of the foul beasts launching themselves at him with more burrowing greedily in from all sides. He pictured the rats madly joyous at the discovery of a live being, a fresh meat. He saw their bristly snouts nuzzling at the soft pink flesh of his throat. He could picture their razor-keen teeth meeting beneath his chin while his outraged blood spurted out over them. He could feel the animals quarrelling with each other for the right to devour the tender morsels that were his eyes. What was that? That sound, a fitful champing and chewing sound, was it, as of hundreds of rats patiently gnawing at the sleek, fresh wood of his coffin? No, he thought, more imagination. There was no sound. Everything was utterly silent. It was, he thought, the silence of the grave. Then he wondered how he could still retain a sense of humour, how, for that matter, he could still retain any shred of his sanity trapped like this. He could no longer preserve the fiction that he was still lying in state in some undertaker's parlour. Coffins do not normally have locks. The only reason why he had been unable to lift the lid was that he was already in the ground. No doubt Louise and her lover had rushed him into the ground as fast as they could. They would be in for a surprise, Massey thought, with calmness that surprised himself. Calmness was what he needed now. In the same way as he had piloted so many complicated financial manoeuvres, James Ronald Massey now set to work to think of a way to escape from the living grave to which he had been condemned. Pushing at the lid was futile. He had already tried that a dozen unsuccessful times. But perhaps he could break the lid, claw his way upward through the dirt till he reached the surface. He felt in the darkness for the satin lining of the coffin. The air hung like a moist cloth around him now. He realised he had no more than a few minutes' air left, and then the hideous, slow death of strangulation would start. Better that than the rats, he told himself. I don't want to be alive if the rats break into the coffin. I'd rather choke to death than be eaten alive. Yes, much better to choke. His hands clawed at the satin and ripped it away, shredding the expensive cloth. Now he could feel the smooth, cool pine boards from which the coffin had been made. The wood had been planed and sanded to a perfect finish. He laughed a little wildly. Probably Louise had bought him the most expensive coffin that could be found. Nothing but the best for my poor dead darling husband, she must have told the undertaker. He began to pound at the wood, hoping he would hear it splinter. But the wood held. 
He gasped for breath, knowing just a bit of fresh air remained, that now the torture would begin. He could barely fill his lungs. He drew in a deep breath and nearly retched at the nauseous taste of the stale air. Weirdly, he wondered if perhaps they had laid him in his grave upside down. Perhaps he did not face the sky, and perhaps he was really digging at the bottom of his coffin instead of the top. In that case, even if he did succeed in breaking through the solid wood, he would be far from free. Impossible, he thought, a joke of my tired mind. He had to keep trying, couldn't give up now, not now, when the air would be gone in minutes and the rats lay waiting for him. His hands, which had never done any kind of manual labour, now clawed and scraped desperately at the unyielding wood of the coffin lid. His nails raked the mocking pine boards again and again, as if he thought to dig his way through the wood splinter by splinter. His nails ripped away one by one, and blood streamed down his fingers, and he felt the bright hotness of the terrible pain, but still he clawed and screamed. Help me! Can't you hear me? I'm buried alive in here. Alive! I'll give ten thousand dollars to any man who gets me out. Uh, Twenty thousand! Fifty thousand! Do you hear me? Fifty thousand dollars! He might just as well have offered the moon and the stars. No one heard his call. No one answered him. The funeral was probably long since over. The mourners dispersed. At this moment, perhaps, Louise and Henry Marshall were making love and laughing to each other about the fortune that was now theirs. Help me! Help me! His broken fingers clawed futilely at the wooden barrier above him, clawed until his nerves were numbed by constant agony and he could feel no more pain. The air was all but gone now. Part of his mind was still clear. Part was still engaged in formulating plans. Break a hole in the coffin lid, he thought. Widen it. Claw through the dirt to the surface. The soil will still be loose and soft. You can push it to one side. If you can only get out of this coffin. Get your head above air. Breathe the fresh air again. Call for help. Then settle with Louise and Henry. It was all so simple. All but the first step. He could not get a purchase on the wood. The air was a vile, moist thing now, and he could feel the cold hand of asphyxiation tightening steadily round his throat. The staleness of the air was making thought more difficult. He could barely think clearly any more, and he seemed to hear the rats again, chewing tirelessly at the wood, as if they knew that a living being lay in the wooden box, as if... They yearned to get to Massey while the warm blood still pulsed in his veins. And his heart, the heart whose sudden failure had been mistaken for death, his heart now pounded wildly from his exertions, and the pain that shot through him was ten times the torment he had experienced that night in Louise's bedroom. He wondered how long he could stand the combined assault, the rats, the rats coming to get me, and the air almost gone, the darkness, my heart, my heart, I'll need a miracle to get out of here now, my heart, the pain, the pain. Suddenly tranquility stole over Massey. He smiled and realised that the pain had diminished. He felt calm and assured now. How foolish he had been to work so hard to get out of his coffin, 
there was such an easier way to do it. All he had to do was drift. He drifted upwards, passed lightly through the sturdy wood he had failed to break, drifted up through five feet of dark earth, and stood once more on the surface of the green land. Free. It was mid-afternoon. The sun glinted brightly, the sun Massey had thought never to see again. Fifty feet away a group of people were gathered round a marble headstone placing a wreath. Massey shouted to them, I'm free! They buried me, but I escaped from the grave! Get the sexton! Tell him there's been a mistake, please! Curiously, they ignored him. They did not even turn around to see who called. Massey repeated the words to no avail. He took a deep breath and discovered for the first time that he could not taste the spring-like freshness of the air. He felt no cool fragrance in his nostrils. Massey looked down. Then, suddenly, it was as if the ground parted beneath him, and he could see clearly the coffin lying deep in the earth, and he could see into the coffin where the dead body of a middle-aged man lay, his fingers torn and bloodied, his face mottled with the discoloration of asphyxiation and the redness of a sudden and fatal heart attack. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried to How do the dead come back? Well, there we are. That was a bit of a horror, wasn't it? Back from the Grave by Robert Silverberg. I used to read a lot of Robert Silverberg in the 70s. He's um, science fiction, really. Um, but this is part of my uh, build-up to Halloween, my October 2023 Halloweens, and we did The Graveyard Rats. And so I was leafing through m- some of the many books I've got um, this is uh, 65 Great Tales of Horror. And partly I'm looking for the titles. This is a glimpse into my mind. I'm looking for the titles because the two things that make um, the, it um, the, these things go down well are the, the, um, the thumbnail, the picture, and the title. So you can have a story that is moderately okay, or you can have a story that's absolutely fantastic, but it's got a, a kind of unappealing title. Nobody, and you do, you do a dumb, boring thumbnail, nobody's going to ever click on it. They're going to go, they're going to look at it in their feed and go, ah, yeah. well, no, some people will, because they're kind of regulars and they think, oh, well, I will do it. But um, others not. And, and and that's the truth of it, you know. And you can actually get a, a story that's mediocre. And I'm going to be honest with you. I thought this story was mediocre. It was, um, yeah, it was mediocre. It was um, unremitting. It wasn't, there was no clever twist at the end. I mean, the idea that he's dead and coming up is really commonplace. But, um, and the idea that he's been cuckolded by his... Um, 25-year-old wife. It's almost... But it is of its time, I think. And this... Published in 1958 first. Uh, So, you know, that 50s, 60s thing. And it's been actually done a number of times. So uh, it was first published in 1958 in the magazine Monster Parade. And then it was uh, redone in the Boris Karloff Horror Anthology in 1965. And there were a couple of editions of that. 
Uh, it was translated into Spanish by uh, Manuel Diaz in the Antologia do Horror. Actually, that might be Portuguese. Uh, the Best Horror Stories, blah, blah, blah. Chamber of Horrors, 17th Fontana Book of Great Horror Stories. So it's pretty much a horror story, isn't it? And it follows on from The Graveyard Rats by Henry Kuttner last week, depending which which uh, order you've listened to them in. But it is... It is um, Kind of that. You know, Halloween is not a subtle time, really, is it? I mean, there's the Halloween of the ancient Celtic traditions and the things that, and the folk customs and all of that stuff, which I kind of grew up doing. But, um, and then there's the brash, garish, um, commodified Halloween that has joined Christmas as uh, one of those opportunities to for people to sell things. Um, I'm not against it, you know. I, I like Christmas as well, even though it is... Um, vulgar really these days it shouldn't be didn't used to be but it is it's grossly vulgar these days and halloween is as well and uh, so and so is this story really it was a vulgar story it was not a subtle story can you imagine edith wharton or um faulkner or henry james writing something like that um, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Or even MR James, you know, it was kind of in your face. And it's like what I was saying with the graveyard rats. Um, there was there was um, a, a period whereby, you know, what you you, you pick some of these uh, phobias, so whether it be rats with it being buried alive, and you pick it and you just lay it on. Let's lay that on. It wasn't badly done for what it was. I think it was certainly a... He probably enjoyed writing it. It did its job, I think, and you couldn't fault the craftsmanship of it, but it just was vulgar and uh, commonplace. So there we are. So, uh, But I, I enjoyed it in a, in a vulgar, commonplace way because there is a vulgar and commonplace side to me, which uh, people who know me well will, will realise that, um, mainly my family. But uh, anyway, let's say something about Robert Silverberg because I've kind of... Usually I lead with um, the author, but let's just say something about Bob. So Robert Silverberg was born in Brooklyn, New York on January 15th, 1935, and he's 88, so he's still alive. He is an highly esteemed author known for his significant contributions to the world of speculative fiction with a career spanning several decades. Silverberg's journey into the literary world began in his early teenage years when he started submitting stories to science fiction magazines. He graduated from Columbia University with a bachelor's degree in English Lit in 56, 1956, all the while crafting stories that would earn him recognition as the best new writer with his first Hugo Award, which is a science fiction award. Uh, that, that same year, 1956. Notably, Silverberg's prolific output during the 50s and 60s with an average of five published stories per month, that is extraordinarily wonderful, established him as a prominent figure in the genre. However, in the late 1950s, Silverberg diversified his writing efforts to other genres due to changes in the science fiction market. This period saw him prolifically producing works under various pseudonyms, including a substantial collection of erotic novels published as Don Elliot. Um, I haven't read any of those, though I, I would say that, wouldn't I, even if I had, even if I had a full shelf of Don Elliot books. Um, anyway, let's not get too deeply into that. I do not, okay? His transition to exploring more literary themes began in the 60s. Uh, he, a shift marked by his association with the New Wave movement, 
I think that's like JG Ballard and people like that, Mike Moorcock as well, and renewed focus on character development and social depth. Later in his life, after experiencing personal challenges, he retired from writing in 1975, but returned with renewed vigour in 1980 with the acclaimed Lord Valentine's Castle. Um, I read a whole bunch of his stuff in the 70s. I used to go to the public library on a Saturday and I would get two or three uh, science fiction books out. Always science fiction. I would just read the whole shelves um, and go back on the bus. In 2005, he received the prodigious title of SFWA, which I don't know what that is, Grandmaster from the Science Fiction and Fancy Writers of America. I now do know what that is, cementing his legacy in the genre. His literary achievements are nothing short of remarkable. He stands as a prolific author with hundreds of short stories, novellas and novels to his name, earning numerous awards and accolades throughout his career. His early works displayed an innate talent for storytelling and garnered him recognition as the best new writer with the Hugo Award in 1956. We knew that. However, his writing, and we all know this, a new wave with with more literary ambitions. During this period, Silverberg produces, this is his new wave period, a string of critically acclaimed novels to open the sky downward to the earth to live again, the world inside and dying inside. These works showcased his ability to merge profound themes with gripping narratives and garnered in multiple Hugo Nebula Award nominations and wins. Um, yes, yeah, so Lord Valentine's Castle marked the beginning of the beloved Majipur series known for its intricate world-building and rich character development. In recognition of his profound impact, Silverberg received numerous honours, including introduction into the SW, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame in 1999, and we knew about his Grandmaster Reward in 2005. Reward Award. His enduring legacy continues to inspire both readers and fellow writers, making, making Robert Silverberg a true luminary in the world of speculative literature. Rock and roll, isn't it? So, yeah, so I'm still going to be looking for more horrific stories to do in the run-up to um, Halloween. Now, people say, have you got anything special for Halloween? And the answer is, I haven't yet. I've got three weeks to write a story. I don't know if I I can. I might dig out one of my stories or do somebody else's stories. I was thinking about doing um, uh, Lovecraft, some Lovecraft, Dreams in the Witch House, possibly. Um... The, the only thing about Lovecraft is that he's been done very well by other people uh, who also have podcasts. So it's like, well, you know, they've done it. They've done it uh, amazingly. So is there any room, really? Let me think on. I've got to write. I'm doing some live events uh, for Halloween. Not as many as I'd like, but I'm I'm kind of waking up. COVID kind of put me to sleep about live events, really. And I know it's been gone a little while, but it's um it's taken me a while to wake up to think, Oh, yeah, let's do some live events and actually be a bit proactive rather than just kind of going around venues and saying, uh, do you think you'd want to book me? Because they're going like, I don't know who you are. Imagine them not knowing who I am. But it is true. Yes, most people don't. And uh, by long chalk. And uh, so maybe I should just kind of book a venue and be my own promoter. I tend to do most things myself, you know, Um Kind of like with the books, I've still been banned from Amazon. They're being utterly stupid in that, um, I told you, they'd claimed I'd breached the trademark. They pub- this trademark, I hadn't known what it was. It was Choose Your Own Adventure. And uh, the, the publisher of who owns the trademark very nicely reached out and said, look, do you know what? Um, you probably didn't know you'd breached it. Just remove it and we're fine. And I said, of course I will. But Amazon are like, you have breached our contents. And I'm just getting, you can tell by the tone of the 
emails that they send me, they're half wits, you know. And um, and I don't I don't apologise for that term. Some of you, oh no, you can't say yeah. Be hashtag be nice. No, no, they have crossed me, and um, I will I bear grudges somewhat chronic, and uh, I will I will retain my um, grudge. So even if they said, even if they said to me, oh we're really sorry, Tony. Uh, listen, uh, we'll put all your books back on. We'll we'll pay you your royalties which we've stolen. And we won't. Ch- I tell you what, they they um, they build me for advertising for an account I can't actually access. So I'm like, what? But the advertising people were actually nicer than them. They said, oh, you can get in here. I said, I can't even switch it off because I can't. I've got no access to my account. And they said, oh, if you do this, trick, 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 you can do it. So I did, and hopefully I won't get billed anymore by them. But I don't want to go back to them. I'm happy. I've, I've published all the books with Ingram Spark. Today, I started an Etsy shop. I was talking to Sheila. I often do. And uh, she was saying, it's like you don't want to sell your books. I said, I do, I do, I do. She said, well, just post them. I said, post them myself. Sign up. What are you talking about? I mean, you know, say I sell a, a a hundred books a month. Then that's going to take me all my time posting them. But of course... um, these these are uh, paperbacks. I'm pleased how they've come out. Um, and um, I think I'm selling them for about a tenner, ten pounds, which is about probably about twelve US dollars. Um, and but then postage, because if you if you kind of put the postage or the the shipping, uh, as we we say these days, um, if you put that on, then like you know that's it's it's even in the UK it's three pounds twenty. If I send it to the US is about five pounds, so we'll see if it works. I've only put two up. I probably will put the rest up. But it, but of course, if you do want to buy it directly from me, look on Etsy, and I'll sign it for you. Uh, whatever you want, um, which you know, even I would say within reason. But no, you tell me what you want me to sign, and I'll do it. Um, I, I may live to regret that, but no, 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 no. So anyway, that's my ongoing gripe with Amazon. Um, which will never be. Yeah, honestly, if they said to me, if they crawled on their bellies and said to me, please come back, I'd go, no, no, I have made other arrangements. And so this whole doing it all yourself, I tend to do the design myself. I tend to... Um, one of the contentious issues turned out in the use of, of AI. Some people are very upset about... I don't use AI writing because it's dreadful. But I do like the images generated by Midjourney and I like playing with them and it gives me more control because in the past I've commissioned, and I, you know, some people may be listening to this and seething. I've commissioned artists. I've gone on like DeviantArt and I've gone, I've done this two or three times and, I'm, and I don't, I don't want to, I want to pay them properly. So I've paid them like 300 400 $500 and for a unique piece of art. And it's come and it's been late on t- certainly one occasion and it wasn't what I wanted I didn't really like it but I'm like and you say well can you do this and they go well that's that's your revisions used up mate and I go oh well so I paid you 400 quid and I don't like it and I'm not going to use it so and that's why I use uh, AI art so because I can I've got much more control over it and that's pretty much basically what I am a control freak I suppose about about that I'm pretty much a, a, I'm a slapdash guy. I'm a, I'm a, a good enough guy. So, yeah, so Sheila was saying, no, sell them yourself. So I'm going to sell some at the um, live events. 
Uh, also, I, I put up this idea about people coming overnight to stay at this place and they would stay in this kind of haunted castle. And I think it's too expensive for people because, you know, you've got your trans. I get that, your transport, and it is a kind of... Because it's a castle. It's not just like a Premier Inn whereby, you know, you're going to get cheap as, cheap as chips. Um, and But a nice breakfast. Um, I... I did that interview thing with Grace Dent and she's got a really funny thing in her book, her comfort eating about waking up in the, in the premier inn in Slough and uh, <laughs> that the, the breakfast experience whereby you don't talk to anybody, but the hash browns save your life, you know? So um, yeah, that's true. So it's not that. So I think that was expensive. So there's a guy called Nunky theater and he goes around and he appears to be never Robert Lloyd Parry He He appears to be never, off the road. He's been in Providence in New York and up and down the UK. I don't think he's ever home. You know, he's, you see him, oh, he's in York and then, oh, he's in Kent, Canterbury and, you know, Aberdeen. I don't know if he ever got to Aberdeen, but he might have done. Uh, and uh, he, he does well, but I'm like, I don't, apart from never being home and never seeing my beloved doggies and Sheila, there is no you know, don't think there is, to that order of me saying it, there's no significance, it's just the way it came out of my mouth. Um, so, yeah, so uh, I'm now thinking, well, the trouble I'm in now. Um, but no, 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 I didn't mean anything by it. Beloved Sheila and the dogs, uh, I'd never be off the road. I, I quite like being a bit of a tramp. And we mean that, a gentleman of the road, we don't mean a salacious sort of chap who hangs around, um bars near railway stations um i don't mean that at all i'm not don't mean that kind of tramp the first kind of tramp appealed to me being a gentleman of the road i even tried it i maybe said this before when i was about 17 i went uh, kind of trying to be a tramp but it rained a lot and it wasn't a lot of fun sleeping in woods in the rain so i phoned my mum up and she came and picked me up from lawton um soaked as well uh, but anyway, so, but I like the idea of it. And this year we've done a lot of walking up and down. I'm good at walking, as it turns out, have a skill. Uh, and um, I enjoy it as well. So up and down, up and down, up and down. So where am I going with this? I seem to have even lost myself here. I think I was saying, <laughs> who knows what I was saying. Yeah, no, okay, I get you. Going round telling stories would be fun but apart from never being home there would be the issue of you've got to pay your transport costs you've got to pay your accommodation say if i go to aberdeen i can't come home so i'll have to pay for a premier inn probably so you know you're thinking well that's going to cost you 50 quid if not 100 pounds depending on where it is and the time because it varies and then you if you drive with a train that's going to be you know another 50 60 quid so you've you at the off the get-go, you're looking at you need to have, have pull in 150, 200 quid. And, um, you know, if you sell a ticket, what, £5 a piece, 750 your 10 people turn up, you, you're bankrupt. So anyway, so I like the idea of it. And uh, so that's why I'm not doing more live events, although I do like the idea of it. Oof, that was a bit of a gallop, wasn't it? Um, I, can't, I think I was knocked off by... Um, my rage against um, Amazon. Also, I had the, I've had a bit of a... Uh, this is quite interesting. I had um, a problem. I switched on everything 
microphone, no sound at all. I'm like, oh no. It's a Rode, um, they're Australian, you know, they make good microphones. It's a Rode NT1A, nice condenser mic. So a condenser mic, different, there are two kinds of microphones. Um, dynamic microphones, and they, they just have a, well, there's shotgun mics as well. I've got one of those as well. But because um, when I first started podcasting, I got into that, what they call gear fever. And you're like, oh, yeah, I've got to have that. I've got to have that. And um, you probably don't need all those things. But so I got the, a condenser microphone picks up the the room, not completely, but it picks up a lot of room noise. But it gets all the nuance in your voice. And so you get a richer sound with a condenser. And the microphone makes a big difference to how it sounds. And so I had one of those, but it didn't work. So I'm like, oh, I used to use this one, which is the Rode Procaster, which is another Rode magazine, magazine another Rode um, uh, microphone. And this is a dynamic. Now, a dynamic just catches what you speak into it so if i go off i'm going to talk to the side now that is me talking to the side i've got it i think i've got a condenser on so it's going to pick it up but you know you should it should have you should have heard a difference there um and you're going to say no i didn't but uh but you should so i put this one on and if in the story you hear the volume go slightly off that's because i've turned my head uh so the condenser's better anyway i'm like oh god I had a, I've got a lovely um, CAD uh, American, I can't remember what they're called, but uh, the the company, anyway, I got it. It's lovely, lovely, lovely. It developed some chronic, dreadful self noise. So I was like, I contacted them and I said, oh, well, we, it's over the Atlantic. We're not going to fix that. Isn't, who did you buy it from? So I bought it from a company in Kent. Uh, and uh, I said to them, and they said, oh, it's out of warranty, so we will look at it, but we're going to charge you £200 just to look at it. I'm like, oh, God, it's not worth it. So it was a pity, but this one, the NT1A, didn't work, and I'm like, oh, I hope I don't have to send this, but I hate sending things back to get fixed. But I would have done it, But um, and then I went on YouTube, which is wonderful, and I'm on, I don't say that because they pay me, but they do pay me, and I also think they're wonderful. Uh, you learn so much from YouTube, how to put screws in. If if you get a piece, if you get a tin you can't open, or a tin opener, or anything at all, somebody's made a video about how to do it. How to, um, how, I was looking at how to do grub screws. We've got this mixer tap, and um, it uh, it was, the handle was coming off, or, yeah, and it was the grub screw, so I had to work out how to get the grub screw and tighten it up. So you can learn anything off YouTube, including how to fix microphones. So I did, with the CAD one, I, there was a video and I had to take it apart and wipe it with um, some kind of fluid, non or oh, non-ionized water to, uh, to, uh, to uh, try to clean it. But it didn't work, still noisy. But this one, if you're still on track with me, the Rode NT1A, the Dynamic, it said, dry it with a hairdryer. And I've got, that's ludicrous. How can that? do anything so i went downstairs and i haven't got a hairdryer because i haven't got much hair but um sheila has so i borrowed sheila's hairdryer and i you know it does that noise that one uh, and uh, and I, I thought this isn't gonna work and i plug it back in and it is absolutely fixed so if you have a Rode NT1A and it stops working sometimes it's because of moisture and you just need to either put it in the sun if you have sun uh, in where you live, 
we we don't as much. Uh, we've got cloud though, if it, and that that is the problem, of course. Uh, and it rains a lot, and so it's been very um, humid and damp. So this is probably what's broken it. So, uh, but it's fixed, fixed. Uh, so, if you're not interested in microphones, I I totally understand how that might be being a bit boring. Uh, did I tell you the time when I thought it was really interesting? I'd memorised all the towns and villages around the coast of Britain, starting and I remember starting in uh, Land's End, talking to somebody, and I got to, to Merseyside, I think, and um, naming every single town and village and uh, on the coast. And the person I was talking to said, "You need to stop this. This is really, really boring." Uh, and I'm like, "No, really, it's, it's, it's. No, no, it was boring." So I get the fact that you may have been bored by my microphone story. And then the other thing that happened was, I took the dogs out for a long, long. Well, I took them. It was about four miles. I took them this morning, and um, they'd had a bit of a sleep. I was, I started to record. Sheila's down at uh, Kalita at a mind, body, spirit do, and she's taken a few of my books, but she's been making coffee soap and um, but she makes all sorts of stuff like uh, uh, tea from uh, Rose Bay Willow Herb, and she makes this pain killing mushroom stuff from these deadly fly agaric mushrooms. It really does kill the pain, it absolutely works. Don't, don't do it yourself. There's some secret to it because I think they are poisonous. So uh, I don't know what she does. I was very wary about trying it, but uh, I did, and I have, I'm not dead, so clearly it's fine. But um, so they took the dogs out. Sheila's away, and they were. I was fixing the microphones. By the time I got them fixed, they decided they wanted to have a fight. So they do kind of toy fighting, as we say, around here. And uh, they were toy fighting, and but they're very loud. So I thought, oh god. So I took them out for another walk, but not as long this time, just a couple of miles, maybe uh, probably even a mile and a half, maybe two miles. And um, they've, but then they're still loud, so I've locked them out. So if I go downstairs now, heaven is in their rage at being locked out. What piece of furniture or remote control they will have eaten. I've lost my CD remote control and I'm wondering if they've eaten it. Because I've got the, the Hawkwind um, Space Ritual 50th Anniversary box set and uh, I was putting it on, I can't find any controllers. Again, you may not be interested in that either. Um, so that leaves us looking at Halloween. It leaves us with me thinking about, am I going to write a story? And if I write a story, will it be a good story or am I just writing a story for the sake of writing a story? Although that can force a good story sometimes. But... Um, there we are. I hope you enjoyed Robert Silverberg. I'll try and get one that isn't about people living, lying in coffins. Or I could maybe get another one about people lying in coffins and have a kind of a theme, the graveyard theme. Um, who knows? I don't know. Um, okay, I hope you're all well. I'm well. Um, go on Etsy and buy my book, but not too many because I haven't got so many copies. I'm waiting for some more to come in. But, uh, yeah, go on Etsy and buy my book, but uh, just don't, don't all do it. Everybody dies.
changes, don't they? Everybody come back. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is and and, you know i appreciate it so you get my love and gratitude and also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barcud, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.